Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you haven't heard yet, Unchained is going live with a show on stage with Vitalik Buterin in New York City on March 20th. Check the show notes to find the link to buy tickets. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Do you have an idea for a blockchain app, but are worried about the time and cost it will take to develop? The folks at Azure have you covered. The new Azure Blockchain Dev Kit is a free download that gives you the tools needed to get your first app running in less than 30 minutes. Learn more at aka.ms slash unchained or by following them on Twitter at MSFT Blockchain. My guest today is Glenn Weil, a political economist and social technologist, the co-author of Radical Markets and a principal researcher at Microsoft, and Santiago Siri, the founder of Democracy Earth. Welcome, Glenn and Santiago. Great to be with you. A lot of people in the blockchain space talk about the potential for this technology to be used in governance or to change the way we govern ourselves. This ranges from everything to how Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are beyond the control of central banks, to how privacy coins in particular could be could, could make it harder for governments to raise taxes. It could also be the way that blockchain technology could be used to change voting systems or even allow people to choose their own digital jurisdictions that they choose to participate in. But this technology is so not nascent that it seems like all of this is a long way off. And yet people like you two are very active in thinking about how this could work and also in beginning to try to create the technology that could make all this happen. So let's start with a very general question. What problems are you guys trying to solve using blockchain technology? Well, um, in my case, what we're trying to figure and out... this is Santiago for the listeners. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Um, what, I'm, what we're trying to figure out uh, coming from the Democracy Earth Foundation is what would it take to deploy a democracy over the internet, uh, anywhere there is a connection to the internet that is censorship resistant, that is fair, that can reach any uh, member of society, and that can operate in a borderless way because it's uh, digital. And uh, the promise of blockchain-based networks is uh, is very promising in the, in the sense that it can deliver the right infrastructure to build systems that are far re- less corruptible than the current electoral systems that we find anywhere in the world, and that can scale to help us as a society, as a global society, to start thinking about governance in a borderless way or in a post-nation-state mindset. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just to reinforce what Santi was just saying, I think one of my main motivations in what we're doing is trying to have a democracy, a democratic society without a particular nation state being the place that, that democracy happens. Democracy can happen in your workplace. Democracy can happen in an open source project. Democracy 
can happen in your church. Democracy can happen in all sorts of organizations, some of which are within a nation state, some of which are a nation state, some of which are bigger than a nation state, and many of which cut across nation states. Like imagine Facebook wanted to have a democracy or or you wanted a democratically governed social network. So I think what I'm excited about bringing about in the world, and I think what Santi's building the important technology for is how do we divorce the concept of democracy, which is incredibly important, from a particular nation state or whatever that organizes that democracy. Interesting. I like that idea, actually. And yet, um, as you'll see from my questions later, I have, I have a lot of skepticism, too, about what you guys are trying to do. Um, but I just wanted to bring it back because, you know, Santiago was using these words like um, saying that he wanted to help prevent uh, elections that are corruptible and stuff like that. So what are some kind of like everyday issues that people talk about or uh things that we've seen, frankly, in current affairs that you feel like would be either preventable or uh, resolvable using this technology? Well, when when you look at traditional elections, uh, there are multiple ways of trying to hijack the outcome of what's going on. Two very common attacks uh, are particularly the spread of fake news or, or gossip or false information about the candidates or so uh, being able, one of the challenges of democracy is not just being able to scale uh, the ability to participate, but also to scale the ability to understand what is being voted. And um, that's one, one, one of the important aspects where blockchain technology, I think, at the end of the day, helps to be a much more direct channel to the institutional reality of what's happening among organizations or within organizations than having these intermediaries like the press or the media that uh, eventually can can generate or inject confusion in society. The other aspect is related to having a strong consensus on the identities, on the voters that are participating in a democracy. When we originally started that Democracy Earth doing simply open source software for democracy, in high stakes elections, we found that the database administrators or the authorities that had to decide who were registering to vote or not in the electoral process, if they had a bias of their own, they would delay certain identities from getting access to the process and accelerate other identities or family members to get access to that process. So decentralizing the voter registry, building a consensus that is able to grant voter rights, uh, that it works uh, in a decentralized way, can be extremely relevant to reduce uh, these type of attacks that are actually much more common than we think of, especially in developing countries when it comes to democratic elections. Great. And yeah, I actually wasn't even, you know, with all the research I had done before, I wasn't even aware that fake news was something you guys were trying to tackle because that seems a little beyond the purview. It's not particularly the battle, the main battle that we're picking. Uh, I think, I, I think that the problem with, with gossip or false information is because of the distance of what happens when you have an institutional event, a transaction happening and what gets communicated uh, into the, in the media. The, the interesting thing about blockchains is that these are networks that provide a public ledger that in a, allow for a, for society in a permissionless way to audit what's happening in this ledger. So, um, the, the information about institutional events, uh, is, is much more transparent and accessible to everyone. But, you know, we, we obviously need better technology to parse and analyze what happens in these networks. All right. And so since that was kind of a little bit of a detour, why don't you talk a little bit more about what Democracy 
Earth is working on directly right now? So our main project is an open source project called Sovereign, which is a decentralized application that aims to make easy and accessible the ability to interact with blockchains for the purpose of governance. We are focused our organization, focusing our organization right now uh, into being providers of governance as a service. Uh, we work with some uh, large blockchain projects out there, uh, like uh, Blockstack, uh, for example, where this is a, a, a blockchain project that is rewarding developers uh, with $100,000 every month uh, in rewards to those who build on top of the platform. And those who decide how to reward these developers are the token holders of Blockstack. So this is a, an example of a blockchain project that has governance uh, where the investors or the token holders directly allocate capital uh, through their voting uh, to the, the, the people that are actually contributing work and developing for this network. This is a simple example of uh, how governance tools are becoming more relevant as we are starting to understand that blockchains at the end of the day are like uh, bureaucracies. They are power structures and power structures require good governance. And I would argue that good governance is democracy. It's interesting because I think that in a way that's like taking the function of a corporation, but just applying it to an open source project where you don't have this traditional hierarchy where, you know, you could have a board of directors or, um, uh, you know, the, the officers of the corporation deciding like, this is how much we're allocating toward this. And instead it's just the community decides like, this is how much we'd like to pay for this. Or yeah. That. Well, I think that that in many ways gets back, I think, to what Santi just said, which is that, you know, in our society, we kind of have two types of organizations as the canonical ones. One is the nation state, which is like democratic, but it's extremely inflexible. It's like really hard to become an American. It's really like, it's a fixed geography, even if you do move there. And on the other hand, we have these like entrepreneurial things. But the problem with these entrepreneurial things is that they're very profit oriented. You end up in practice having to spend 80% of your time, like actually making your product worse in order to extract money from people. And, you know, only 20% of your time actually making the product awesome. And huh. so, like, well, you know, I mean, I, well, exactly 2080. I mean, but a lot of your time you end up spending worrying about monetization and stuff. And you think about the number of people who employed at Google sort of, like, selling ads versus actually coding up cool stuff. And so the question, you know, the cool thing about open source is it maybe has some of the flexibility that a corporation has. And... It has the, you know, it has the potential for participatory demo democratic type things. But, you know, there's a question of how is it funded and there's a question of how is it governed, right? Which are open questions, even though it has this cool possibility of being sort of both democratic and flexible. And I think what both Santi and I are working towards is building technologies and ideas that enable us to have both flexible and democratic organizations that are funded and governed in a reasonable way. Yeah, I actually listening to Santiago talk, I had this question earlier where I was going to ask him, oh, you know, I noticed you guys were given funding by Y Combinator, but they're an accelerator and they're trying to make a lot of money. So why would they fund a nonprofit? But I immediately when you were talking, I thought, oh, this sounds like something very useful for all kinds of technology projects. Yeah, so, well, you know, we're lucky to be one of the few actually nonprofit projects funded by YC. And we're extremely thankful because that allowed us to come to the US, you know, uh, my beginning with this uh, exploration of the intersection between the internet and democracy dates back to uh, back to Buenos Aires, where among with some colleagues and friends, we started a political party. And our mission was to figure out a way to do a Trojan 
attack to the Congress by having candidates that will always vote in Congress according to what people decide online. So we had to figure out the political side of things of what it takes to build a political party that can bring this new kind of rhetoric in a context like Latin America, like Argentina, that is about using the internet to leapfrog our democracy to the 21st century. And at the same time, figure out the technological aspects. What does it take to build a democracy over the internet? You know, it has to be open source. It has to work in a decentralized way. You need a strong consensus on the identities. And we, because of YC, we were able to come to the US and start thinking about this in a global way, break the mold of the nation state, uh, and understand that the narrative of the 21st century is definitely the internet no longer just taking over the cultural layer of society, which already the web won that battle. But I think that the blockchain uh, revolution, quote unquote, will is about taking control or the internet going after the institutional layer of reality. And that's a much more powerful layer. Yeah. And reading some of the materials to get prepared for this, I was thinking that actually some of these problems we're seeing with elections and and such may come from the fact that our lives have moved digitally, but our voting systems have not. And so we're kind of in this transition period where, you know, just all, all, all that infrastructure hasn't yet caught up. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a general problem of sort of the formalism that governs our lives, like nation state and the corporation, whatever, like not really matching the society that we actually live in. And I think, yeah, I think many of our problems and not just the like fake news or whatever, but all sorts of things come from the fact that like we don't have institu formal institutions that are sufficiently responsive to the social reality that we're actually living. The nation state is already in a big crisis, especially since the last election in America, where a lot of questioning and has been put on the role that Facebook played because of the suspicion there was a foreign power interfering with the election uh, in the, the most powerful election in the world. The principle of the nation state is based on non-domestic intervention. Since the peace of Westphalia in the 17th century, it's this basic rule that keeps an equilibrium of power that achieves a certain peace that you don't mess with my domestic affairs uh, and I won't mess with your domestic affairs. When you have a foreign influence uh, being s suspicious of exploiting this technology called Facebook uh, that has actually everyone voting every day. But the problem of Facebook is that it's a fake kind of voting because it's surveys based on the idea of satisfying Facebook's uh, profit needs because it's at the end of the day an advertising company. It's Facebook surveying people. But we're voting with every like. We're actually giving a preference. Now, these, these likes only satisfy this advertising-based business model. And it turns out that uh, whether we want it or not, now it's breaking the very principle of non-domestic intervention. And Mark Zuckerberg's being called to testify in Congress and explain what's going on. Now, you know, Facebook has been a, an influence factor in elections anywhere in the world, in, in the Arab Spring, in, in many, many environments. The, the fascinating thing in political terms, what's happening right now is that now not even the U.S. is protected from what it has created. So the nation state is no longer in place. Wow. So Glenn, you kind of came into crypto in a really different fashion. So why don't you explain what you're working on and how it has come to evolve together or, or evolve into working in the crypto space? Well, I mean, I think the way I ended up in the crypto world was that I was always really interested in what you guys might call decentralization, what I would call liberalism. It's just the opposition to sort of 
random historical authorities running our lives without much legitimacy or reason for being there, et cetera. And um, an alternative to that is to try to set up new rules of the game that provide a lot of the, you know, backbone that we get out of these regulatory institutions or corporations or whatever, but that embodies it more in something like the rule of law or some way in which we design our society. And I wrote a book about that, but um, I soon became aware that that was sort of the goal that a lot of people in the crypto community had, was to try to replace a lot of these concentrations of power with sort of new rules of the game that would sort of take more take care of themselves and allow things to be more decentralized. And But the problem is, while they were interested in those ideas, the actual rules they had by and large come up with didn't seem to actually yield the outcomes they wanted. They ended up concentrating a lot of wealth in some people's hands, concentrating power in other people's hands. It didn't work out the way that they hoped. And on the other hand, I had come at it from not from a crypto perspective, just from the perspective of like, well, that's a very old story, things not working out the way people hoped. We actually have a whole science and economics called mechanism design that is about trying to address that issue. And I, you know, through that set of things, came up with some ideas for society, not particularly ideas for crypto, but ideas for society. But it turned out that it was like solving a problem that crypto people had had for a while. So. And what are some of those solutions that you want to propose or have been so, proposing? So some ideas are um, a new funding mechanism to create organizations that are neither the nation state nor corporations that unlike corporations are not about profit. They're about the public good, but unlike the nation state don't have like fixed boundaries or some particular constituency that it, instead that emerges and the way that that works so like a DAO sort of like a DAO, but yeah, but different than DAOs that currently exist because it would be funded, not based on some sort of capitalist profit principle, but instead based on effectively a set of matching grants. So you can imagine like the Ethereum Foundation gives out grants. Actually, many of the cryptocurrencies foundations give out grants. And you can imagine that those grants could be allocated either, as you were describing earlier, Santi, by like some board or something like that. Or in, in this case, the way that they actually get allocated is that individuals make contributions to some project like on Kickstarter but then the grants come in as matching funds for those individual contributions. So now how exactly do you want to structure those matching funds? Do you want to match one for one? Do you want to match smaller contributions more, which a lot of people think we should do, right? Because it's more democratic. Do you want to, but if you want to match smaller funds more, like how much more and how does that work, et cetera. So it turns out from economic theory, you can sort of derive an optimal design for that. And that's what Vitalik... Buterin, this um, economist, philosopher, poet lady, Zoe Hitzig, and I have come up with is, is a sort of optimal system for doing that. So that's one example. Which is what? Uh, so it's, it's that the square of the sum of the square roots contributed is the amount that the organization receives. That's and a big and mouthful. And you guys call that quadratic voting? We call it quadratic finance. Quadratic finance. Okay. So how, how does that work exactly? So... So, okay, if, if in under a normal contributory system, the amount that someone would receive would be the you add up all the money that's given in by different people. Under this system, instead, you add up the square roots of the amount that's given and you square that. So what that means is that if you give small contributions because the square root is concave, you get more matching funds. 
if there are many people contributing, you get more matching funds. So it, it has this sort of democratic character that sort of like Bernie Sanders would get like a lot of matching funds and mm-hmm. like uh, Mitt Romney or someone who funded their whole own campaign would get no matching funds. So that, that's the idea. Like something that's popular and that has lots of small contributions will get lots of matching. And something that is just like one dude doing it will get no matching. Mm, yeah, I guess. Okay, well, I'm not going to name political figures. I think the listeners might get mad if I say yeah. who would not fare well. Um, yeah. But but I, I really like that idea. Is, is anybody in the crypto space working on applying that? Yeah, so actually fashion? this has been by far of all the ideas the most quickly adopted. Um, there are two implementations that I know of, and I got an indication the other day that there might be some higher profile impl- implementations that are more private, but there was one for charitable matching by WeTrust. Oh, um, they, and, they were um, advertisers on my show. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I've spoken to them before. Yeah. They're doing interesting stuff. And then Gitcoin. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, They're an interesting Just completed a well. campaign, I think yesterday, I think was the end of the campaign for giving open source software uh, pro- or really blockchain infrastructure within the Ethereum blockchain grants. And it appears that consensus grants, which is a much bigger version of that, right. is going to adopt their approach based but, on the wait, results consensus of consensus systems, consensus grants. So consensus just announced a set of grants that they're going to be doing. I think they announced it last week or, or maybe earlier this week. Yeah. And like consensus in Bushwick. Yeah. 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 And, and they're going to give out a set of grants to um, like, meaning they're going to be the matching. The first thing they announced was that they were going to give out grants and then they're there. It looks like they are going to, the way they're going to give those out is by making it into this matching fund. Oh, oh well, hmm. I guess we'll have to watch that. Yeah. Because it, it's somewhat similar to quadratic voting, which it, is, it is very related. It's, it's, it came after quadratic voting, but it's very related. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to have you describe, like, I liked that part in your book where you were talking about how quadratic voting changes, but voting behaviors, um, when compared to more traditional yeah. polling around the I don't know what, how to pronounce it, the Likert, I guess. Likert, yeah, yeah. Likert, yeah. So can you describe that for the listeners? Yeah, so quadratic voting is a system that's related to this, but rather than using money, you're given a, a budget of credits um, that you can't, that are non-fungible, you can't trade them with someone else. And you use these to vote, say, on issues or on candidates that you care about. And because it's a budget, you can express a stronger preference on something that is more important to you, but it becomes increasingly expensive to do that. So if you get four votes, that costs you 16 credits, whereas one vote only costs you one credit. So buying the fifth vote is way more expensive than buying the first vote. And are you literally purchasing the credits? No, the credits are not fungible for money. You can't sell them or trade them. You're okay. allocated them by a system. So how, when you say ex- expensive, what does that mean? In, in units of these credits. So everyone gets a budget of credits, but then there are a bunch of different issues or candidates that they can spend those on. And the more influence you have on any given issue or candidate, the more expensive in units of those credits it becomes. So it's way cheaper to have a little bit of influence on many issues than to have a lot of influence on one issue. And when you say more expensive to have that greater influence, is it simply because then you can't use the exactly. credits? Oh, right. got it. So like, for example, imagine there's 10 issues. You could have 10 votes on one issue, or you could have three votes on all ish- all 10 issues. Right. So then you would have three times as much influence if you 
spread them out more evenly. Oh, okay. Okay. Now I understand. Well, so here's something that I was curious about when I was reading it. So, well, actually, let's, so let's, but let's go back. Describe the Likert yeah, thing, yeah. how that So, so changes. the Likert scale, which is something everyone probably is familiar with, is one of these surveys where they say, do you strongly agree? Do you weakly agree? Are you neutral? Are you weakly opposed, et cetera? Now, the problem with those Likert scales is if you look at the distribution of reports that people give, most people are on one of the two extremes. A good chunk of people are at completely neutral, and almost no one is at anything between. Now, maybe that's actually what people's preferences are, but it seems kind of weird. The, the, the thing looks like a W, which is not what any statistical distribution I've ever seen looks like. Whereas if you put people under quadratic voting and you have them vote on you know, issues in a similar way, but they have this budget constraint and it becomes increasingly expensive, the distribution of preferences looks like a bell curve, which is what most distributions look like, not a W. And so in that sense, it, it, gets much, it, it seems to get much more honest responses from people. Yeah, it essentially forces people into making trade-offs, whereas yeah. like and under liquor, then they can sort of um, scream as loud as they want exactly, on everything, right? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> with no, yeah, with without having to do the trade-offs. It's a good recipe for this age of polarization. Exactly, right. exactly. But so this is why I said before that I was a little bit skeptical because when I was reading about quadratic voting, I sort of I I got like how the budget constraint seemed really smart. Yeah. And yet at the same time, I have seen this time and again. It's happened to me. It's happened literally to a friend of mine recently. We saw it happen with uh, Offrey in the Ethereum space where he was sort of forced out, I think, because of some people got super riled up. But I don't know if they represented the majority. Uh, but And there are many examples kind of in our politics where you see that like there's one very vocal and passionate small group of people that kind of force an issue, whereas maybe the silent majority or the majority um, is probably silent because they they're it, it maybe it's the status quo and they're sort of like happy with it right mm -hmm. and so that's why I'm a little bit like why is it a good idea to give m minorities this greater power because then essentially what we're going to see happen is that these extremes kind of take control of things where it, it, it's sort of similar to how people always talk about how um, the primary system in U.S. politics is bad because then yeah. you get the the um, passionate base that don't re represent everybody to pick the candidate and then, and, you know, nobody's happy in the election. So, so I, so I kind of don't yeah. understand how this could lead so, to so good I outcomes. Think there, I think there are two extremes that we can think about. So one extreme is one person, one vote majority rule. And I think that that has the problem, which is endlessly discussed in the crypto space, especially Vlad Zamfir, for example, goes on and on about this of mob rule and like the major oppression of the majority and people who like really don't know or care anything just go one way and then everybody else goes along even if they may know and care way, way more than that. So you don't want to go to that extreme. But the opposite extreme is allowing a very small passionate group to just dominate everybody else, right? So clearly neither of those is the right place to be. So what do we want? We want something that allows people to express their greater knowledge or preference but where it gets pretty costly if they want to dominate everybody else, right? And it's exactly that happy middle that quadratic voting strikes. So in fact, you can see this if you, if you just give these liquor things, people go to the extreme. If you give people a linear budget where they can just take points and they can put it on whatever they care most about, you get the same pattern. Basically, people put all their votes on one issue that they care the most about. Hmm. And then you don't get the rule of the majority or the right decision, you get the domination of the few people who care the most about that particular issue. 
quadratic voting is this compromise in between it. But it's not just a compromise. You can actually show mathematically reasons why, and I can explain that to you if it's useful, you get exactly expression in proportion to how important the issue is to you, rather than either going to the extreme or just completely forgetting about the importance. So essentially what you're saying is like some of the extreme behaviors that we see online or, or just in society get tempered, uh, even even when you give the minority more power. So So exactly. even if they are able to affect change, it, it's not as extreme as it would have been otherwise or something like that. Is that? Yeah. I mean, look, you, you can have a situation in a room where you like have everyone be quiet and just have everyone raise their hands and take a vote. Or you can have a situation where you allow people to scream as loud as they want to scream. And there's like almost no cost to that. Both of those are not very good ways to make a decision. Right. Instead, you want some orderly process where it becomes costly for you to be louder but you do have the ability to do that if it's really important to you. That's how good decision-making processes work. And this tries to mimic that with formal mathematics. Well, one other thing I wanted to ask about was in the way that you framed your answer, you sort of assumed that the people that feel passionately are also the most knowledgeable. But I think like we saw back in the Tea Party days, there were some people who were Tea Party activists who believed that, for instance, Obamacare was going to institute death panels and they would like scream about this at these town halls, but obviously that wasn't true. So that's another case in which I sort of wonder, like, does it make sense? Well, I mean, so on on average, what we know from the political science literature is that that's not true. That like actually the people who tend to feel most passionate about things on average are more knowledgeable. That doesn't mean that they'll always agree with you. But in terms of ask answering factual questions, having read a lot about the thing, et cetera, on all those measures, the people who are most indifferent on the issue know the least on average. And the people who are most have the strongest preferences know the most. Now, So that example that I gave was just an outlier or? Well, I mean, look... I think that there are people who are, quote, knowledgeable, unquote, on both sides and have read a lot who believe things that may not necessarily be what all statisticians or what all, you know, like descriptors of of the thing would do. But at some level in a democratic society, like we have to settle disagreements, including disagreements about things that many of us believe are the absolute facts of the matter. And I, I think I could tell you a bunch of facts on issues that you might care about that like, you know, most economists would agree with, but certainly are not what the New York Times is reporting all the time because it doesn't go with the usual left narrative either. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, like, I, I, you know, and, and we have to find a way to Yeah, I mean, I wasn't saying that it's only the right yeah. that has misinformation. Yeah, that yeah. wasn't what I was saying. I was yeah. just saying that sometimes uh, passion comes from misinformation, so... Well, I'm just saying on average in our society, that's not what like political science literature is consistent with and shows. And in fact, like you take the example, like a lot of people, for example, it's an objection to quadratic voting are like, oh, but you know, Trump had so many passionate supporters. That's just like not true. Like it's just as a matter of fact, like if you look at uh, like intensity weighted polling, which they've done where you have these extreme, you know, Likert is imperfect, right? But even, even with its imperfections, if you just weight things based on that and you do just a quantitative weighted polling, Trump came in dead last of all the candidates that were running of the 20 that were in the primaries. Hillary Clinton came in second to last. Kasich came in first. 
and Bernie Sanders came in second. Wait, Kasich came in first? Yes. because Wait, John Kasich? He would have come in first in that weighted polling, yes. And the reason is that, like, for every strong supporter of Trump, you had two strong opponents. For every 1.5 strong supporters of Hillary Clinton, you had two strong mm. opponents. Kasich had some relatively small number of strong supporters. Almost no one disliked him. And he had quite a lot of weak supporters. So once you actually net all these things mm. out and you think about the fact that passion of that sort is almost always as much negative on the other side as it is positive on your side, it's just like a lot of the intuitions that people have are just not really right. Wow. Yeah, no, it would be super fascinating to Im implement this and see how it changes outcomes. Yeah. Um, so we're going to discuss more about blockchain-based voting in a moment, but first a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Getting your blockchain app off the whiteboard and into production can be a big undertaking. From connecting user interfaces to integrating disparate systems and data, blockchain app development can be time-intensive and costly. Well, the folks at Azure have you covered. With a few simple clicks, the Azure Blockchain Workbench can create a blockchain network for you, pre-integrated with the cloud services needed to build your app. And with their new development kit, users can extend their app to ingest messages from bots, edge devices, databases, and more. It's free to download and gives you the tools you need to get your first app running in less than 30 minutes. To learn more about the dev kit and how to get started, visit aka.ms slash unchained or follow them on Twitter at MSFT Blockchain. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Face it, regulations can stall or kill a fast-moving crypto business. New Financial Action Task Force and European Union cryptocurrency AML laws are coming soon. You could be hit with stiff fines or blacklisted, no matter where your servers are in the world. Prepare now. Deploy the same powerful CypherTrace tools used by regulators. Protect your assets, streamline your compliance programs, and keep your exchange or crypto business out of the regulator's crosshairs. Learn how effective anti-money laundering tools help keep your crypto business safe and trusted. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unchained. Cyphertrace is securing the crypto economy. Back to my conversation with Glenn Weil and Santiago Siri. Santiago, you look like you wanted to make a comment about that. Politics would be so much boring if we had these systems in place, right? Oh, right. <laughs> that is, well, I don't know. Would it be? It I don't know if it would more... be boring. Maybe it would be interesting in a less morbid way. Yeah. Maybe, 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 maybe a little bit less like looking at the corpse on the side of the thing and instead watching a really beautiful art exhibit. Yeah. You know? yeah. They, they say politics is, is show business for ugly people. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, we would hope. Um, so to keep going on the, the voting track. I wanted to ask about uh, just in general using blockchain technology and voting. This is a very controversial topic. Like I've been at blockchain and crypto conferences where people who are super gung-ho for this technology, they work on it, you know, all with they're dedicating their lives to it and they will get into these huge arguments. Some people say, and I've seen on Twitter as well, they'll talk about how dangerous and irresponsible it is to use blockchain-based systems for voting. So for you guys who are kind of working on the technology to try to implement your ideas, what do you feel like needs to be put in place in order for 
people to be able to trust these kinds of systems. So when it comes to, uh, for example, in the case of national elections or state elections, which are very big processes that involve all, all of society, ideally, um, there's this, uh, you know, long argument, long time argument of e-voting and or, or using electronic machines versus paper ballots when it comes to voting systems. And I think a lot of these arguments make sense in the sense that uh, we need to create systems where everyone uh, in society can have the capacity of auditing how the election is uh, working and, and uh, provide the proper mechanisms to reduce the likelihood of corruption or um, tampering with the ballot boxes or, or, or with the electoral system. Electronic voting machines, uh, because of that, are, you know, severely questioned all around the world. Uh, I think, you know, one of the best uh, recommendations that I've read on this subject is actually from the Supreme Court of Germany that argues, uh, in, back in 2010, I think, that any, uh, voting system uh, should at least have two kinds of support to store the votes. So if you're going to do an electronic voting system, keep a paper trail so you can have have the two supports that are storing the votes to take uh, with each other rather than do only electronic or only paper. When you look at only paper ballot uh, kinds of elections, especially in developing nations, uh, you see all kinds of coercion and violent attacks where from people stealing the ballot boxes, burning ballot boxes, uh, and basically having, uh, you know, you rely on party authorities to count the votes which reduces the scope of people you need to bribe in order to win an election. And uh, in that aspect, machines are actually better. If we can have systems uh, that can electronically uh, give the guarantees that the votes being count are counted the right way, uh, it's probably better. So in the argument, I think there's this discussion of electronic voting, yes or no. It's a false binary argument. We need to think of hybrid systems and we need to think of systems that can uh, really re include everyone in, in society if we're thinking about uh, elections. That said, when it comes to governance of blockchains, there's uh, governance of blockchains and there's governance by blockchains. One thing is how we're going to uh, guarantee the mechanisms that allow for the upgradability of these protocols. And uh, in that sense, you know, finding the mechanisms that help everyone have a consensus whether we should implement SegWit or not. And uh, then there's uh, governance by blockchains, which is using this technology to face the challenges that society requires to bring much better accountability to our democracy and 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 really, you know, help help elections happen not once every two years, but you know. Technically, you know, we could have democracies where we could be actually voting or participating in a much more dynamic way than just going to the, to the poll every two years. So, um, I, I try to focus more on how these technologies can serve society and pay a lot of attention to the governance mechanisms of the different blockchain protocols that are out there. Uh, but there's, I think, a huge, tremendous potential to think on how these technologies can start paving the way towards global governance and, and to a new kind of politics that runs on the very same uh, source of information that we use on a daily basis, which is the internet. I mean, I, um, I would be one in the skeptical camp of actually literally using blockchains for important voting anytime very soon. Some of the things I think are real issues, and this is something we will probably talk about at some point, but, and that's important to both Santi and me, is identity. 
there are not like blockchain is fundamentally not a system based on human beings and voting is fundamentally a system based on human beings i couldn't agree yeah. more yeah and like that, that was that, actually the, 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 this the is issue probably I... the most single fundamental issue but there's there's several other issues as well even beyond that so um coercion resistance is a huge issue because the truth is in almost any electronic voting system that is remote and is not in person without really 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 thoughtful hardware fixes i'm not i'm just not sure software is enough i i don't know how you stop someone from just looking at your phone while you vote like And that's a that's a major issue. That's a very very serious issue. And that goes. Wait, and well when you say looking, you mean like a hacker? Physically, physically, no, no, physically, someone being there with your phone, oh. watching you press a button. Like there may be ways to have hardware that prevents that, but it is not a trivial hardware problem at all. And there's no way. There's nothing about the blockchain that can fix that problem. It fundamentally has to be a hardware issue. So and wait, I mean, what about just telling people do this in a private place when no well, one's so around? Was, no, no, but but the thing is, someone can who wants to be paid by someone else to vote can eco easily circumvent that. Whereas, like, if you're in a private booth and that's observable to the election officials, that's very different. Oh, I see what you're saying. So they know that you are choosing to vote. On like your like own a lot will. of people, you have to coercion resistance requires not just that you want to resist coercion, but that you are unable to prove to someone how you vote. Otherwise, you can be coerced. And so, like, I'm not saying there's no way to solve that, and I go to things all the time about this, but, like, I think fundamentally it is a hardware problem, and there may be hardware solutions to that hardware problem, but hmm. they are, like, fundamentally different than the software things that blockchain can facilitate. So, so even beyond the identity thing, there's these really hard hardware issues. So, and, and I could go on, but I think there's like a number of like really difficult challenges of doing this. And by the way, some things like that happen for absentee ballots, but there's like huge issues with absentee ballots as well for the same reason. So there's just a lot of challenges involved. And so you glossed over the identity, but that was actually what you know, where I was leading with I my question. I glossed over it so because I think we should dive into yeah, it in greater depth well, than I wanted to go into now. it quickly. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about that now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, my question really about it is just, just generally, I feel like something I talk about often on the podcast is the problem of oracles, you know, mm -hmm. how can you verify in, in any situation, not just identity, but how can you verify that real world data imported to the blockchain is actually true? So yeah. here, you know, obviously identity is kind of the main thing, but are you guys working on proposals right now to, to, you know, be sure that these identities are, can so be, are verifiable? One of the the most scary papers that I read in, in recent times is this paper published in December that uses uh, generative adversarial networks, which is this new technique of machine learning to create pictures of humans that are very extremely photorealistic, beats the uncanny valley, and uh, that uh, never existed. You, just, you know, these uh, machine learning algorithms can. Uh, learn the features that are happening in our faces and combine these features and generate new faces that look exactly like any random picture of any human being. Yeah, I think I saw an article about and this. And it's actually and it beyond really photos. Creepy. It's actually, th there's also masks. Yeah. So there are masks that have now been developed that with a 97% human success rate from the distance that you and I are currently at, yeah. I couldn't tell was not 
actually a real human face. Wow. So the very nature of humanity is being challenged by artificial intelligence. Uh, and this is uh, a very, very tricky race that, uh, that we're, we're fighting against. In that sense, uh, coming from democracy earth, we try to think about what are plausible lines that we can explore and research to try to figure uh, how to address this problem. When it comes to blockchains, there are a couple of entities that you need to care about when it's about governance. One is you're probably have to deal with bots, artificial intelligences uh, that, um, you know, try to hijack the, the, the network. Civils, uh, and a, a human identity that is actually controlling multiple identities. And then the, the risk of money and bribing that can corrupt uh, validators in the network. Um, to address uh, the, the issue of bots, uh, a line of research that we're looking in, into is this idea we call Turing impossible proofs. Some kind of proof that is able to be uh, validated by another human being, but an AI is simply not able to uh, process or understand or parse that, that information. I always give the example of how I did my daughter's birth certificate um, three years ago already by using video. And it's a, a video file that it's, has me, my wife, two witnesses, which are my mom and my mother-in-law, uh, acknowledging the identity of my, uh, of my daughter. And then because it's video content, it's, it's, it is still hard for, you know, machine learning algorithms require a lot of training for specific purposes. So it's not something that an, an AI can easily catch, at least not at the state of computing today. Won't be the case in a couple of years. But it's a first step towards figuring out a format that we know that only other humans can really, uh, you know, are really required to understand and interpret and not just uh, artificial intelligences. That's an approach, you know, an initial step towards figuring out how to prevent bots. Uh, then the issue of civils is probably working with reputation algorithms or, or trust in the network. The problem with reputation is that reputation is a code name for centralization. You know, all reputation algorithms mathematically are centralization algorithms. So uh, a third approach uh, that we're also looking into is you know, cryptographic lotteries, randomization, uh, which actually, you know, if you go back at the history of democracy, the Greeks, the way they implemented democracy was through lotteries. They elected public servants using this device called the Kleroterion, which was an entropy device, a lottery device. And if you got picked by this device, you had to become a public servant for a year. I think that uh, when it comes to blockchains, those who get the rights to validate identities, they should get that right after a cryptographic lottery. So you don't know who to bribe in the network and, uh, you know, helps keep the system uh, protected against this kind of economic attacks. These are all tentative lines to research and work on. But I think we definitely need to address this problem because when Satoshi Nakamoto said, one CPU, one vote, that's his quote from, from the paper. That's fantastic. But that's talking about power to the machines. If these technologies are going to serve society, we need to man up to the situation and figure out how we are going to do one node, one human, or something that really takes into place the social layer of uh, these networks and not just uh, the, the technological software layer. Yeah. And, and so I... Uh... I'm, 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 I very much share Santi's goals. I have a slightly different approach, which tries to go sort of deeply into actually sort of the philosophical level of like, what is human identity? 
And the, the way I think about that is that what we are is basically a bunch of information. And all the information about who we are is already shared with other people. So take the example of my mother's date of birth. My mother's date of birth is also my mother's date of birth. And it's my grandmother's date of her first child's birth. And it's my sister's mother's date of birth. And in fact, if you think about almost all the information about you, it is shared with different people already, just by the nature of social life. And in fact, if you go back in the history of the development of identity, that is where, that's was the nature of identity verification prior to the emergence of the nation state. So actually mo most people didn't have a surname. They didn't have a last name. They sometimes had a first name, but often they would even just be described by their relationship to other people. Mm. So you would be the person who lives in relate, you know, the child of et cetera, et cetera. Right, right, and in right. fact, names emerge from that. The reason that the surname is inherited from your parents comes from that. And the reason why in, in many countries there are patronymics or matronymics in some countries is precisely because of that relational nature of identity. And I, oh, oh patronymic, that's like... John Stepanovich, like, you know, right, right, son right, of right. Ste Stefan, right. you right, know right. what I mean, Stephen, right? And so if once you take that into account, then you actually start saying, oh, what is your identity? Well, the face is really not a good way to think about your identity. It's just a heuristic. The truth is that your face is a reflection of all of the things you've been through in your life. And all of those things that you've been through in your life are a way more rich and complex set of data that's far, far harder to fake, especially when you take into account the fact that there's always, for almost all those things, somebody else who knows it. Right. And you'd have to fake those persons. You see what I mean? So once you start actually embedding people fully within their social context, rather than in the way that the nation state and centralized institutions have done it by trying to flatten you down to like your fingerprint or your face or your iris. But if you actually think about the full social context of everything, that is far harder to reproduce than is these thinner aspects that we've relied upon. Well, so I don't know if I totally agree with that because um, honestly, when you were describing those things, it reminded me of those security questions that you get when you're trying to log into your bank yeah. account. And it's like, you know, who is your teacher in first grade or what's your mom's middle name or whatever. And yeah. so the, I feel like those are things that other people can find out. And that's why they always say you should lie when you answer the security questions. So that way a hacker can't, you know, gain access to your bank account or whatever. So how would you use that, like using that yeah. theory, how would you apply that in a blockchain-based identity yeah. system? So I think that the, the problem and the reason why those can be problematic is that there's a very small number of those things that we usually ask about. But the reality is like you are billions of bits, not five bits. Like your mother's date of birth is so overused. Right. Your social security number is so overused, right? right. Like the, these are like ridiculously overused quantities. But the truth is that imagine that your cell phone was in, in a personal data store that was, let's say, non-hackable, whatever, you know, really, really private, was tracking every GPS location that you did at every time. And every time you were together with someone else, a link would be established between your phones saying we both were here together. Okay, now this is just getting creepy. No, but it's not in any it's centralized too... server. 
What, 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 I don't, I don't okay. think it's creepy at all. That's in I your mean, head guess, anyway, right? So all that information is in your head or maybe with less the, fidelity in well, your head. What it, well, I mean, how would you keep it from being hackable? Well, okay. So, so then there's a question of how, how do we secure that device? But, but, but the, the point is that like there is enough – like, let's not even call it a device. Let's call it your head. And imagine your head just has an implant in it and it's, and it's secure, securable to something. Or, or you, you know, like the, the point is that the, the relevant information that's actually useful, that actually shows you uniquely as you, is all the stuff that has happened in your life. And like that's actually what makes you interesting and unique and different and so forth. And to the extent possible, we should have digital systems that try to mimic that process rather than ones that like come up with these artificial things that flatten us. So, so do you think that there is some way to implement this using in a blockchain system? Because like what you're describing to me, I get I don't it think on it's a blockchain level, system. But... I don't think it should be in a blockchain system. Well, or, or yeah, not in necessarily a blockchain, but yeah. but if we're talking about trying to use blockchain-based systems for voting then and talking about the problem of identity, yeah. is there... I, I mean, I, I the problem is I don't really like the blockchain data structure for this type of an application because the blockchain data structure, even though things can be added on top of it, everything is either public or private in the blockchain data structure. Mm. And that's fundamentally wrong for the applications that I'm talking about. Because yeah. everything well, I was but describing... But what about was, like view keys and stuff like that? Do you... Well, I mean, yes. So, so those can elaborate on it but i'm saying like the basic structure of the blockchain is based on there's me and then there's the global thing and this is fundamentally based on exactly the opposite of it it's like every piece of information is shared by some small community which is not the whole thing to me that's what decentralization is about actually is about the fact that information is neither global nor completely individual it's shared within a variety of different local communities and so i i actually think that that's uh, that is it's a different data structure than a blockchain it's still a data structure and it has a lot of the spirit of blockchain in the sense that it uses mechanisms and uses you know data structures to instantiate social relationships but it's not a blockchain per se so essentially your idea for resolving the identity issue for if we're going to ever have blockchain based voting is to use some other kind of technology and yeah. then okay so i actually want to move on to now yeah. also talk about just in general, both of you um, are working on ideas where uh, you're essentially melding money and voting. So, um, you know, Democracy Earth has its vote token. Uh, we, we talked about the budget and quadratic voting. So I was thinking about this, and this is sort of a new concept. And uh, there was something about it that made me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and my mind sort of went toward, like, plutocracy. Like, how do you prevent the wealthy from just ruling? So what are your thoughts on kind of the pitfalls and advantages of melding money and voting. I definitely agree that if you look at the, the, the governance protocols of most blockchains out there, they're all of them plutocratic, one coin, one vote. Uh, and, you know, that's probably fine for a lot of projects where, you know, decisions um, and are driven by different motives. Uh, but uh, I'm particularly interested in figuring out what it means to actually deploy democracies over the internet. Uh, that's my personal uh, mission in, in, in what we're doing with Democracy Earth. And um, the reason for attaching an, an economic value to, to the act of voting is simply because of the need to differentiate voting from surveys. When you participate on social media, I think actually voting is the main interaction we do with the internet on a daily basis. Uh, 
PageRank is really an algorithm counting the votes that each link received from other pages on the internet. Likes on Facebook is a way of voting. Retweets on Twitter is a way of voting. Uh, up, you know, upvotes on Reddit, hearts on Instagram, you name it. We are always giving these networks this, this preference or, and this, you know, signaling what, what we are voting for. Now, none of this voting is, um, capturing any economic value for the voters. It's capturing all of the economic value for the centralized entities that control these networks, which 97% of the revenue comes from advertising. So it's, it's really a mechanism of, of surveys. What we care about coming from Democracy Earth is finding a mechanism. And, you know, I, I, I think quadratic voting is one of the most promising ideas uh, by far in the space to understand how we can stop, you know, being subject of surveys and really empower the end user with voting transactions that are able to trigger uh, institutional change, that are able to trigger a cryptocurrency transaction or unlock funds. Or, but you know, the difference between a survey and voting is that it, it voting does have institutional impact. The U.S. election has a, a cost of six billion dollars, uh, around seventeen dollars per vote, if I remember the numbers correctly. It's not a free vote. There is a cost attached to, you know, doing that process. And, um, so when we look at how to bootstrap a democracy over these networks, identity, I, I couldn't agree more, is one of the most important hurdles to overcome. Uh, if we want to start having democratic, uh, systems of governance and not just plutocratic, uh, within blockchain environments. Yeah. Um, so the way I, I think about it is, so first of all, you should be clear. Quadratic voting does not involve money in a traditional sense. It involves a budget of votes, uh, which is given equally to everyone. However, I think that it does involve some ab ability to transfer votes across different things or to have a budget and not just one vote on everything. And I, I think fun a fundamental problem in our society, and this is partly where we started, is this incredibly sharp distinction that we make between the market and the state. You know, the market is flexible and adaptable and whatever, but it's undemocratic and exploitative. And the state is democratic and equal, but completely rigid and fixed. And, and that distinction sucks. It's the reason why we have all the issues that I think that we have. The, the right way to think about things is we all have fundamentally equal dignity, but the notion that we should all have completely equal voice within every organization that we're a member of is totally crazy. It's like nobody wants that. You know, Hannah Arendt, who's one of my favorite philosophers, said one of the greatest freedoms in the modern era is the freedom from politics. Mm. A lot of people just don't want to have to deal with all this junk. Yeah, and like the reason we yeah. have representatives, the reason that we have boards, the reason we have everything is that not everybody wants to have equal say on everything. So what we need to do is give people equal total voice, but allow people to choose where they want to exercise that voice rather than saying that we're going to flatten everyone down to a homogeneous pancake. 
That, that just makes no sense. And then, and then we're in the marketplace. I can buy whatever food I want. I can buy a car. I can just do, I'm a free individual. I can do whatever the hell I want. But then when it comes to politics, I'm exactly the same as everyone else. Both of those are stupid caricatures. The truth is that we're part of lots of different communities. And to the extent we're part of those communities, we take on some notion of equality. But we should have freedom to choose which ones we exercise that in and, and where we belong. Yeah, I've talked about this on the show, but um, are you familiar with the referendum uh, system in California? Yeah, I grew up in California. Like when I lived there, it was just like so annoying. Yeah, the most common complaint you hear from people in California is, why are they asking me to vote on all this crap? I know, I know. I would be like, (laughs) I have no idea. Like, why are you asking me? You know, and it is a relief to like not have to do that anymore. Yeah, so Hunter, Hunter Rent says that it is inevitable in life that not everyone can be like involved in and having a say on every political issue. Instead, we're going to have to have some elites. But as much as possible, we should have those elites be ones that emerge from people's personal desire to be involved in something, rather than elites that, are, that you know, come from somebody being in power and someone else being out of power. And I think that should be our goal, is for the people who govern us to emerge from the public rather than for, from the top down. And I think that, that that's true democracy, not one person, one vote. Uh, Borges, the Argentine writer, once said, one day we'll be worthy of not needing governance anymore. <laughs> that would yeah. be, yeah, I like that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that's this emergent property that Glenn was talking about. Um, so we're kind of running out of time. So I want to actually bring it back to Ethereum because Glenn, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that you said that Vitalik is now your closest collaborator. That's Definitely, something yeah, you mentioned absolutely. to me in a... Yeah pre-interview. So how so? Well, I think that Vitalik's primary goal is to a large extent very similar to mine, which is that he wants to build governance institutions, ways of organizing society that and experiments with those that work way better than the institutions that we currently have. And he viewed Ethereum as a platform to enable those experiments, but ultimately those experiments were what interested him rather than like Ethereum per se. And so I think he didn't see the vehicle for generating those types of experiments as much before the book, other than just putting something out there. But now that like the substance of it, he sees a way to get into it. He's been focused a lot on that recently. And and I've benefited a lot from collaborating with him on those questions. And so that is like, are you guys working on, how else are you working on applying quadratic? uh, So so we we had this paper on quadratic finance. We, um, you know, he's giving a speech at uh, this conference that I'm having next month. uh, Radical exchange, March 22nd, 24th. Um, Actually, I guess right after the event that he's doing with you. So he's flying to New York and then to Detroit. And then he, he and I, so I've been writing a series of blog posts about my sort of political views, and he's been giving me a lot of comments on those. He's, we're co-authoring another paper, which is sort of a methodology paper about how to come up with ideas like this. Um, how did you guys meet anyway, actually? We didn't cover that. Oh, it's really funny. So in October of 2017, he retweeted one of my papers, or he tweeted out one of my papers, and I got like more Twitter traffic than I've gotten from any <laughs> everything combined to that point. And he, I had never heard of him before. I was not into blockchain oh. at all. Huh. Um, I looked him up and he seemed like a Bond villain to me. He was like, you know, 23, 24 year old kid 
uh, Russian Canadian living in Switzerland made all this money on some shadowy business enterprise. But then I asked him whether he wanted to read a draft of my book and he wrote back like 30 pages of the best comments I'd ever gotten. Wow. And so I realized that there had to be something more going on there than just criminal activity. (laughs) Um, and so that was how we started hanging out. Oh my God. I love that story. Yeah, no, he's so thoughtful and incredibly smart. I'm sure I don't need to say this to my listeners. Um, but so one thing that I was so curious about is Vitalik has actually said that he prefers off-chain governance for managing Ethereum. So in, and, and that was a while ago. So I'm just curious, like in your talks with him, has he expressed interest in testing or implementing some of these ideas in an on-chain way for Ethereum itself and, or even using democracy or its ideas? I mean, I think once we solve these other problems that we're talking about, he's very enthusiastic about that. But I think it has to wait for these other solutions. And as I mentioned, I'm personally skeptical that there exists a on-chain identity solution, period. I think we may need fundamentally different technologies than are possible directly on the blockchain without contorting it in a thousand ways that make it just like, you know, Brave uses the blockchain, right? But like, that's not most of what's going on. So, I mean, you could say it's using the blockchain, but, but I think, I think you have to use fundamentally different data structures to supplement blockchains in order to make this possible. Our very notions of what identity means uh, can can be changed, will change for sure as we become more familiar how to use these technologies. Maybe we can start talking about probabilistic identity in the sense that, you know, you are not full human or full machine, but, you know, some kind of threshold in between and uh, working around with that. Uh, there are many, many different ways of, of looking at this. Um, ultimately, what blockchains are, what blockchains are enabling is the ability to bring uh, trust into computer programs. Um, it's, it's, uh, I, I definitely think that Ethereum has ha- had the tremendous ability to accelerate what is possible to think in terms of doing smart contracts and be able to compute trust in ways that Bitcoin maybe by design decided not to be too incomplete, decided to st- strictly stick to the narrative of money and payments and, and you know, store of value. And, uh, you know, that's, that's okay. Thank you, Satoshi, for all of that. But Ethereum took the bold step to allow for much more complex systems to be created because of uh, what making a world computer, quote unquote, allows. And in that sense, uh, it's interesting, you know, now we're a couple of years into the experiment and we're seeing uh, interesting projects to get traction that are not just the ETH token or it's not just the ICO narrative of 2017, but actually new uh, technologies of decentralized finance. And I'm hoping that we definitely also see uh, decentralized politics. And in that respect, uh, you know, we are building systems of trust. Institutions are collections of promises, uh, and what uh, blockchains allow is to guarantee those promises with cryptographic proof, uh, rather than the the words of a of an authority or or of a politician. And for the long term of our societies, where especially you know I come from Latin America, my major concern after having dealt with politics in my country is how terrible corruption can be and, 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 and what, you know, the impact it has on a culture, on a society is, is really, really terrible. And uh, my hope is that, you know, technology can help battle a lot of those uh, shortfalls that happen on, in the way things are today. You sort of very naturally led into what my last question was, which was 
like if this vision that you guys are working toward comes to fruition, what will that world look like? You know, when I was in DevCon uh, this year in Prague, someone told me this, uh, this joke, uh, half joke maybe, that uh, the political experiment of the 20th century was communism. And uh, yeah, we can probably argue that it was a big failure anyway it was tried. And it was tried on every continent in every possible combination. And the dictatorship of the proletariat didn't let anywhere uh, good after you know a whole century of experimentation with those ideas. A couple of countries still trying. A couple of countries still trying. Uh, but anyway. But, <laughs> but that said, that said, uh, a friend of mine told me on DevCon, blockchain like Marxism is going to be successful in the developing world first. It's going to be tried in the developing world first. Because when you go to the developing world, you see this this uh, need, this demand for trying an alternative to the status quo. In my country, in Argentina, we are facing 40% of annual inflation rate. It's what, what pushed me to get Bitcoin back in 2011. In, in you know, needless to say, in countries like Venezuela, where the, the simply trusting the established institutions is not possible. So you have nothing to lose by embracing these new technologies that can help society work under a much better social contract, uh, which works in digital form and is secured by, by computational capacity. And um, I think this is the narrative of the 21st century. The 1917 of the 21st century was 2009, when the Bitcoin clock started. And uh, this is going to unfold. And I hope this is a much better experiment than the experiments of the last century. So the the world I imagine is one that's fundamentally beyond this binary between like corporations that are for profit and governments that are democratic but rigid. It's a world where it's something I call polypolitanism, where rather than we're a citizen of the United States, you would be a citizen of hundreds of different communities. And these communities would own most things. There would be very little private property, but there would be all these diverse common ownership forms. And what would make you unique as an individual would be the set of communities that you're a part of and that you gain value from. And most of the things that we currently buy with money, we would instead participate in communities that would provide them to us. And we would contribute to the democratic governance of all those communities. So it's sort of a radically democratic, but also radically decentralized vision of the world where civil society, as we think about it, things that are neither the private sector nor government and that are democratically governed and that are responsive and emergent takes up most of our lives. Yeah, we did not get into some a topic that I did want to touch on, but we're way over time. Yeah. Uh, but I will link to something in the show notes so people can read about it. It's called Common Ownership Self-Assessed Tax, which goes by the acronym COST. And um, it was very fascinating, but it goes into um, what Glenn was just talking about, where it's sort of like this kind of public-private ownership. Um, but yeah, but we'll have to save that for another day. Um, maybe I'll just have you guys back because this was so fascinating. Um, but in the meantime, where can people learn more about you? Um, you can find everything about Democracy Earth on democracy.earth. That's our website. And uh, definitely you can find me on crypto Twitter. I like to hang there a lot. Uh, I'm at Santi Siri and uh, feel free to drop me a line there. 
and uh, everyone should check out HTTP Radical X, lowercase x, change.org. That's this conference that we're having next month uh, with artists, entrepreneurs, activists, academics. Vitalik. Uh, in, in Detroit, Vitalik, uh, Zuko, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the tickets are available for a, a little while longer. I, I hope many people will come. And you can also follow at Rad Exchange uh, on Twitter or mine at Glenn Weil. Great. Well, thank you both for coming on Unchained. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Glenn and Santi, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Galapali, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, Daniel Ness, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.